0: In Canoe Creek. If you don't know who I am, I'm Ross Runnels. I'm the senior minister at the church. But every year in the summer, I do a study break. So I'm reading a whole lot of new material like you see in front of me here. And um, I'm taking an opportunity for my mind to disconnect a little bit so I can think about future sermon series for the years to come. And we have some amazing speakers who are gonna continue our Binge the Bible series until I get back.
1: So I know that you're gonna be absolutely blessed by the speakers you're gonna hear in the coming weeks. Good morning. Welcome, welcome back. Before we get started today, I have a couple of quick announcements for you. In two weeks from now, at the 1030 hour, we have Connect class. So if you're new to the church or even if you just want some information about the church, about how you can get connected, about how you can get involved, and about how we can help you here at Canoe Creek uh, grow your faith and grow you spiritually, Connect Classic can be able to give you some good information about that. The other major thing that's happening is we have a core class starting on August 21st at the 9 a.m. hour. So, Dr. Wendy Guthrie, she's been here for almost about a month now, and so this is really what she's been working on, um, and it's going to be a great class to help you grow, not only in your faith, but deepen your knowledge of the Bible. We also have Group Link coming up on August fourteenth. And so if you are not involved in a group and you want to be involved in a group, that's gonna help grow you relationally and build relationships here at the church. Grouplink is here to help get you in connected and give you some information about the groups that we have here at Canoe Creek. And then the final thing that's happening is we have family ministry kickoff. And so that'll be August 21st uh, in the afternoon. And so that's from any ages from birth to 12th grade. So if you're interested in, you know, babies or if you're interested in high schoolers, this is a great event that's going to be a lot of fun. And it's going to give you some information on how you can get involved with the family ministries. But with all that said, I'm very excited about our speaker today. We have Dr. Rob Fleener, one of the elders here at the church. He is the Old Testament professor over at Johnson University. And I've had the privilege of not only learning under him, but also working for him, which, you know, if you know Rob. And so I'm super excited for him today. And I know that he's gonna bring a great message. Please welcome Dr. Rob Fleener.
0: Let's just say Evan used to work for me. I was in the sixth grade sitting in the principal's office for yet one more infraction. With me was my best friend and accomplice, Eric. After what seemed like an eternity, Mrs. Nimitz, the school principal, emerged from her office and announced our punishment. For our crime, we were sentenced to police the school and pick up trash every day for a week during lunch hour. This was by far the most severe penalty ever handed down at Mary A. Deterding Elementary School. So starting Monday, we picked up trash. We wandered around campus, enduring the public shame of carrying our trash cans past our classmates as they played dodgeball, and we picked up every piece of garbage we could find. The school wasn't big, just a couple hundred students, two or three acres, so there wasn't much trash to pick up. In fact, we had the entire campus glistening in cleanliness by Tuesday. And then came that wonderful Wednesday. We walked the entire campus and there was no trash to be found anywhere because we'd already picked it all up. We were done. Our punishment ends early. Or so we thought. We went back to the principal's office to return our trash cans. Mrs. Nimitz took one look in those trash cans and said, these are empty. Yeah. Glaring at us, Mrs. Nimitz hold to us in a way that only an irritated principal can tell you something. Don't you dare come back to this office until these trash cans are full. Okay. No problem. Lunch ends and Eric and I continue to wander aimlessly around campus carrying our empty trash cans. We didn't know how things would end, but we were happy to get out of class for a bit. Meanwhile, Mrs., his sixth-grade class had shuffled back into the classroom, and two of the seats were empty. Of course, it's the two class troublemakers that are nowhere to be found. So the investigation begins. The class is questioned, and no one knows anything. Our closest friends are interrogated, but they don't know anything either. More than half an hour after we were supposed to be in class... We watch as Mrs. Hill comes marching toward us, annoyed purpose. Robert, Eric, why aren't you in class? We hunch down a little bit, and very sincere-looking tears fill our eyes as we blurt out, we, we tried to come back to class. Honest, we did. But Mrs. Nimitz told us we couldn't until our trash cans were full, but we've already picked up the trash, and she wouldn't listen. Mrs. Hill's face changed from annoyance to fury as she stomped directly into the principal's office. Oh, we would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. It was another 10 minutes before they both came out to confront us over doing exactly what we had been told to do. All Mrs. Nimitz could do was to stammer and say, next time make sure you're in class on time. And all four of us stood there. All of us knowing that two honoree sixth graders had outmaneuvered two grown-ups for a glorious win. What were you thinking about as I told that story? Maybe you remember what it's like to be in the sixth grade. Maybe you recall your own time when you were in a principal's office. Maybe you think about your best friend or your elementary school. When we hear a good story, or a story like the one I just told, we somehow connect it to our own story. When you watch a romance movie, I'm probably talking to the high school boys here, right? Um, Do you learn something about yourself when you watch a romance movie? Maybe about your capacity to express love by bringing out the best in others. Or maybe your desire to love and be loved unconditionally. When you settle in for an action flick, do you learn something about yourself? Maybe about your capacity to express love through protecting others. Or your desire to have your choices and actions spring from a moral center, from a place of certainty about who you are. That's what a good hero story will do for us. A good story helps us aspire to be more, to reflect on our limitations, to evaluate our experiences and our choices. That's what stories do. They help us hear our own story. This summer, we've been working our way through a story the story of Scripture. One big story that's made up of hundreds of smaller stories. And this story, this narrative, follows an arc, a path in which the coming ending is unstoppable. Today is when we reach the end of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. You've been following along, hopefully, as we've been eavesdropping all along the way to some of these smaller stories to get a sense of where this narrative arc is headed. So to wrap up this section of our series, let's glance in the rearview mirror and take a look at where we've been. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you find yourself confused with all the stories and, and all the details, that's okay. We're all in the same boat, and we're on the same journey to understand Scripture because around here, we believe that Scripture is central to knowing God better. When we started reading earlier this summer in the opening pages of the Bible, we learned that God created humanity for relationship. And that meant building us with a a piece of himself. We're stamped with his image, his likeness. And a relationship is always best when it's chosen. And so, baked into our essence is the ability to choose relationship with God or something else. And that's where Adam and Eve, the first people that God created, enter the story. Adam and Eve are confronted by a problem. They can choose to take God at His word, trust Him, and obey, or they can roll the dice and exercise their own self will and satisfy their curiosity. You remember the story Adam and Eve choose something other than relationship with God. And so the intimacy with God for which we were designed was fractured, damaged in a way that we couldn't repair. So God, in his love and his power, sets the gears turning toward a solution, and he makes a promise that this sin and this death problem would one day be crushed, and the story continues. God singles out one man, Abraham, and promises that he and his descendants will be central to the solution that God is going to provide. And starting in Genesis 12, we, we buckle in and we hang on as the story of redemption kicks into high gear. And Abraham is soon confronted with a problem. As he navigates the faith, his faith in the God who's chosen him, Abraham encounters threats to the promise. Can God really give a childless elderly couple descendants? Can Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob survive the raiding bands and family dysfunction and life-threatening famine? And God, in his wisdom, keeps the gears turning toward a solution. God uses something as simple as sibling rivalry to arrange the migration of a small group of Abraham's descendants to Egypt where they will not only survive, but they'll thrive and begin to grow. And the story continues. In Egypt, it's not too long before this small group of of Abraham's descendants becomes a people. And after more than four centuries, they become slaves under the control of the Egyptians. And what's worse is that the God who made a promise to bless Abraham's descendants that God seemed to be silent, or worse, powerless, compared to the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. But even though he was silent, God never went anywhere. In his timing, God kept the gears turning toward a solution. And when the time is right, God appoints a prophet by the name of Moses to lead the Hebrews out of slavery back to their ancestral home. On God's behalf, Moses works miracles that terrify the region with the power of the God of the Hebrews. And the story continues. God cements the character of the Hebrews by giving them the law, a set of conditions designed to establish the the terms of the, the divine human relationship and transform them from a people into the people of God. And it's the law that is going to become the lens through which the rest of the Old Testament story is viewed. But as soon as they receive the law, this newly minted people of God are confronted with a problem. Can a flawed people actually keep the law given by a holy God? The short answer is, not very well. But God in his patience keeps the gears turning toward a solution for four decades God continually protects and provides for his people and when they step out of line he punishes them to remind them that their disbelief and stubbornness are a dead end and the story continues humbled and recommitted the Hebrews arrive and settle into their homeland where they quickly find that they're coexisting and sharing the region with people groups who are very different in their value system than they are And so the Hebrews finally in their homeland are confronted with a problem. Do they keep the law and stay loyal to their God or do they adopt the culture and the values of the other people groups around them? Spiritual compromise is so easy and the Hebrews give in again and again and again. And God in his consistent faithfulness keeps the gears turning toward a solution. Whenever the Hebrews exchange the worship of God for anything less. God allows them to suffer until they come to their senses. Then he raises up judges, temporary leaders uh, who bail the Hebrews out of trouble. Eventually the judges are going to be replaced by the more uh, permanent kings, a monarchy who sets the tone for the culture, good and bad. And the problem remains, can a flawed people actually resist the sources of contamination surrounding them? The short answer seems to be the same as it always is for them, not very well. And the story continues. With their ongoing constant rebellion and their refusal to learn, God decides to end the nation of Israel. He sends prophet after prophet challenging the people to repent, but they won't. So God uses the Assyrian Empire, then later on the Babylonian Empire to decimate the Hebrew homeland and forcibly remove the people from the region and then relocate them to distant lands. And finding themselves in exile, these Hebrew captives are confronted with a problem. The Hebrews are going to spend two generations trying to figure out how to reconnect with God when everything they thought and believed has been upended. This is the stuff of the books of Daniel and Esther. How do you maintain faithfulness when you're not allowed to worship freely? And how do you worship when you've got no place to do it? And God, in His power, keeps the gears turning toward a solution. God reminds the people that He is not glued to the land of Israel. He's gone cosmic. And he controls emperors and empires. And he's not done with his people. Through Ezekiel, a prophet living in the exile with other Hebrews in Babylon, God promises his people that the exile is only temporary and that he's still got big plans. Here's what Ezekiel prophesies in Ezekiel chapter 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says I will gather you from the nations. And bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. And that's the story so far. God raises up individuals, and then a people, and then a nation, all to keep a promise that he made at the very front of scripture to crush this sin and death problem. And all of that is is background for today. We're going to close out the Old Testament section of this story arc of scripture with one last chunk of Hebrew history. One of the things that the exile does for the Hebrews is that it, it finally breaks the back of their stubborn spiritual resistance. Their world has been destroyed and their own God claims responsibility because of the people's disobedience. And when God is satisfied that they've finally learned that lesson, he sends them home. As he often does, God causes history to roll along and empires change hands. And the Persian ruler Cyrus the Great Under God's influence, issues a proclamation, a royal decree that all the captured peoples now under Persian control can go home. This last part of the Old Testament story can be symbolized by two men Ezra and Nehemiah. Both men were Hebrews who had lived among the the other Jewish captives during the exile. Ezra was a scribe, a biblical scholar whose job was to study scripture. If you need a good spiritual life verse, you could probably do a lot worse than Ezra 7.10. Here it is. Ezra has set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances to Israel. Ezra is a guy who's not just interested in knowing stuff about God. He wants to incorporate God's word into his life and then he wants to teach others how to do the same thing. Ezra is a leader who plants his feet firmly in Scripture as the foundation to build a solid spiritual core in the lives of the people around him. Ezra's counterpart is a guy named Nehemiah. and Nehemiah works for a Persian king as his cupbearer. You can think of a cupbearer as a person uh, um, who oversees the king's meals combined with the king's poison checker. In the ancient world, if you were a ruler... Uh, and you wanted to avoid uh, assassination by poisoning, well, you might keep a guy on staff who oversees the food production and is always available to take a bite of, the, uh, of your meal before it gets to the dinner table. That's who Nehemiah is. And all of that to say the cupbearer is always around the king. A king and a cupbearer might even become friends. Friends. And so if you were to read Nehemiah, you learn very quickly that it looks like Nehemiah and the Persian king are are buddies. And one day, the Persian king Artaxerxes sees his cupbearer, Nehemiah, down and depressed, and he asks him what's wrong. Nehemiah responds that he is agonizing because the chosen city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. A short conversation later, and the king sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild the infrastructure of the city. So, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem as a Hebrew who's passionate about God's city, but he has the authority of the Persian Empire backing him up. Nehemiah is a skilled administrator who's going to manage the reconstruction and the rebuilding of Jerusalem's fortifications. Nehemiah and Ezra, we might look at them this way. Nehemiah oversees the physical rebuilding of the uh, city of Jerusalem, and Ezra oversees the spiritual rebuilding of the people. There are a few other names you'll encounter along the way if you read through this section of the Old Testament. Next the way into the Old Testament are books named after the prophets, uh, prophets Zechariah and Haggai. Uh, Zechariah I don't think is on your prophets sheet that you got in front of you, but he goes like right before Haggai, and they do the same thing. They both wander around the, the area of Judah and encourage people to rebuild. There's also a guy named Zerubbabel, And he's mentioned in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And he's the guy who actually oversees the the repair of the temple itself. But Zerubbabel doesn't get his own Bible book. And he's probably not at the top of your list if you need a good baby name. So keep looking. Nehemiah and Ezra, working on the, the physical and the spiritual rebuilding, are going to be confronted with a problem externally and internally Ezra and Nehemiah face resistance externally enemies of the Hebrews who are living in the land don't want to see the city and the temple rebuilt so they try bribery they try to corrupt officials they try physical intimidation and threats of violence they try some political maneuvering by going over Nehemiah's head to get construction stop, lots of political stuff going on. They even plan an assassination uh, against Nehemiah, all to throw up roadblocks to the Hebrew efforts to restore the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But internally, Ezra and Nehemiah both face the spiritual compromise of the people. There's some well-off Hebrews who earn a lot of money in Babylon and when they migrate back to Jerusalem, there's also some poor people who need a loan. And so these well-off Hebrews were exploiting their poor countrymen with sky-high interest rates. Others were ignoring the Sabbath. Why rest when you got one more day to earn some money? Still, others married spouses that were spiritually incompatible for Jews to marry. And the Hebrews ran the risk of once again forgetting what kind of people they were supposed to be. But God, in his generosity, is still going to keep the gears turning toward a solution. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to use their training and their authority to create and enforce a spiritual context where commitment to God can hopefully flourish. But even Ezra and Nehemiah's efforts aren't perfect. Ezra forces men to divorce their non-Jewish wives, Nehemiah threatens and beats those who actually oppose his policies. In one case, Nehemiah even yanks out the hair of men who have married non-Hebrew women as if you can force someone to be spiritual. This reveals a core problem of the Old Testament. Religion and spirituality imposed from the outside in We need something more. Nehemiah's story sounds like the rest of the Old Testament. Nehemiah's story kind of sounds like our story. He's done his best to please God, but something is missing. And at best, he's got mixed results. During every era of Hebrew history that we've looked at in this story arc, the Hebrews are confronted by a problem. And during every era, the Bible records the history of how they answer a single question. It's the same question that you and I have to answer again and again. It's a question we have to answer for ourselves, in our families, and in this community of believers right here What does it mean to be the people of God? It's the question that's lurking in the background of our story, whether we're aware of it or not what we consume for entertainment, how we spend our money and our time. What are we afraid of? How we think deep down in our hearts in those places we don't like to talk about, about people who confuse us or offend us. What do we long for? What do we love? When we hear the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, we we hear our own story. We can listen in on every story in scripture and find a mirror that speaks our own story back to us. The same kinds of challenges and problems that the Hebrews faced, we face too. Like Ezra and Nehemiah, we're surrounded by opponents on the outside who find us dangerous. While on the inside, our uncertainty and our lack of faith can allow injustice and corruption to flourish. Like the Hebrews in captivity, We wonder what serving God looks like in a culture that doesn't know what it believes. Like the Hebrews, under the kings and the judges, it's possible to let the chaos of the world cause us to throw up our hands in cynical despair and just say it's everyone for themselves. Like the Hebrews, after receiving the law, we can encounter the holiness of God yet still nurture disbelief because we'd rather embrace the sources of our contamination. Like the Hebrews in slavery in Egypt, we can forget that God is powerful or that God cares or that in his timing he's keeping the gears turning toward a solution. Like Abraham, it's easy to forget the promises of God, not completely understanding who he is and what he's done and try to go it on our own. Strip it all away, and we might find that sometimes we're more like Adam and Eve than we'd care to admit. Stubborn, disobedient, and cherishing our own self-importance. We instinctively understand that to be the people of God means being like God. Beyond just being made in his image, in terms of our dignity and value, but existing in a way where our hearts and our minds and our actions are perfectly aligned with a perfect, holy God. And the question of the Old Testament begs us for an answer. Can we be that kind of people? And the answer can be a bit intimidating, if we're honest. Because if you're anything like me, you've got your moments when you're gonna say, not very well. And this is the beauty of the story of Scripture. If the story of the Hebrews reveals anything about our story, it's that God is faithful in spite of our imperfections. God's plan to restore relationship with people that He has created is unstoppable. God always keeps the gears turning toward His solution. But even though God is faithful, his grace can be brutal as he uses his suffering to steer us to a place where our complete and total helplessness without him is absolutely clear. God will crush and burn your idols. God will break the back of your stubborn rebellion because God loves you too much to let you keep thinking you're him. When we've really come to grips with our own spiritual bankruptcy and brokenness and inadequacy, the solution becomes clear. And this is the glory of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and our God, who through his power and his love and his wisdom and his patience and his faithfulness has from the dawn of time kept the gears turning toward the solution that changes how our story ends. Here's where the words of Ezekiel come roaring back as foreshadowing to the rest of the story. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. This promise reaches far beyond just bringing the Hebrews back to their homeland. Ezekiel's prophecy is God's promise to move our relationship with God beyond the mere keeping of rules. It's a promise that the Spirit of God himself will live in us and with us. God himself changes and changing in an ongoing way, changing us from the inside out. Through the cross, our story suddenly takes a turn. As our hearts and our desires change because God Himself is moving us beyond our imperfections. What does it mean to be the people of God? The people of God are those who understand that their story is a dead end apart from God. The people of God are those who know there's nowhere else to turn but to God, the eternal King who left his throne to die on their behalf so that he could show them how his story changes everything. The people of God are the ones who live that story. Joyfully and completely kneeling before the throne of Christ and living in the shadow of the cross. That's our story. That's your story. Live it well. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, so much for not abandoning us to our own stories. We give you thanks, we give you praise because you have made your story ours. Continue to teach us what it means to be your people. Teach us to listen for and be aware of your spirit living in us through your wisdom, through your power, through your faithfulness. Lead us to love no one but you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.